brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. You know, earlier in the service, I read some verses that are found at the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I think these verses hopefully help us to understand what the character of a Christian is to be. This is, again, this isn't something that's kind of in the future for us. This is to be our character now. This is to be how we are to, um, to live now. And I think sometimes we can kind of push that off and, and, and really come to the Sermon on the Mountain and not really kind of think about the fact that, well, you know, it's for today. It's for right now. It's for how we are to live now. And so hopefully as we kind of looked at those beginning passages, it, it shows us what our character is to be like if we are in Christ. And this is, this is the thing. If we're a Christian, this is, this is who we are. This is how we live. This is what we do. And according to Jesus, a Christian or a disciple or a believer or whatever other term you kind of want to throw out on it is, is somebody that is poor in spirit. They are somebody that mourns, that is gentle, that hungers and, and thirsts for righteousness, that is, that is merciful, that is pure in heart, and that is a peacemaker. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. The kingdom of heaven is for, is for Christians. And if we are Christians, this, this will describe us. But if the truth be told, these, these character qualities are not, they're not so easy to carry out. For not only do we have our own sin natures inside of us, that, that battle and, and rage war against us, wanting us to go a different direction, but we also live in a culture that pulls us and calls us away from God. We live in a culture that is living contrary to these types of traits, to living this kind of life, and it makes it hard. We're living in a culture that is opposed to God, and is seemingly doing everything within its power to, to influence us to not walk this way, to not live this way. And you know what? Some Christians, in an effort to avoid the influence of this culture, in an effort to not be pulled and sucked uh, away from what God is calling them to do in the teachings of Christ, well, they've sought to isolate themselves. They've made it a point to remove themselves from having any genuine interaction with those who would possess or follow a worldview that is in any way different from theirs. And you know what? I can certainly appreciate the, maybe the heart behind something like this, you know, the desire to not want to be contaminated or influenced in, in a negative way and in a way that's going to take you away from what Christ is calling you to. But the only problem is, is nowhere in Scripture can I find isolation as being a means by which a person is to do this. We're not called to be isolated. We are called to live in this broken and fallen world. And yet we're to do it in such a way that we put forth Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to save a lost and dying world, not to isolate himself from it. He came to call sinners to repentance. And to do this, he needed to get involved in the, the, the culture he had to kind of get himself out there. Sure, he spent time with his disciples. Sure, he built into them. But he was also amongst the masses. 
He was impacting the culture that he was in. He walked amongst it. He taught amongst it. He interacted with it. He had to have encounters with people whereby they could hear and respond to the gospel. As his followers, you and I are called to do the same thing. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, so that you and, my, you and me might hear directly from Jesus how it is that a believer is to function in this broken, fallen world and truly determine for yourself whether he is calling you to some kind of life of seclusion or to a life of inclusion as you listen to his words spoken to his disciples. Picking up in verse 13, You are the light of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you right now and we thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, that you will just help me to clearly communicate your truth, that I would in no way get in the way, but that your truth will come forth with great power and with great clarity so that each of us, Lord, might better understand how we are to live in this fallen world that uh, we find ourselves in. Lord, may you just open up our eyes. May you open up our our ears, and may our hearts be receptive to the truth of your word. May you help us to truly be a people that live for you and proclaim your glorious gospel to those who are dying and need to hear it. We thank you, we praise you, and we hold our time up to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, in our passage, Jesus uses two uh, very recognizable metaphors, two very common items to help his followers to better understand the responsibility that they have to influence the world in what would be considered a very positive way. It is a call to be in the world, but not of it. It is a call to nonconformity, to not be conformed to the things of this world. It is a distinct call. And it is a distinct call that can only be carried out by a distinct people, a people that according to 1 Peter 2.9 are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to influence the world that we live in. Our lives are to affect those around us for good as we walk in a way that is contrary, that is different to the culture so that men might be drawn to our Heavenly Father. This morning, I want us to take a closer look at the salt and the light metaphor so that we can better understand the way in which we are to go about influencing this world around us. Let's begin by looking at the term that Jesus speaks here when he says that the salt of the earth. 
If we were to get anywhere in understanding what it means to be the salt of the earth, I think we first need to begin to understand the manner in which salt was used during Jesus' day. Because you and I, you know what? We live in a day and age where if we want to keep something fresh, we put it in the refrigerator. If we want to preserve meat, um, we just, you know, we, we slap it in the freezer and then when we're ready to eat it, we come and we defrost it and, and everything's good. And we don't, we don't necessarily use salt in the same way that they would have used it back then. Jesus' day was different. Salt had a very different use and a very different impact. Um, They didn't have refrigerators. If they wanted to keep something from becoming rotten or decaying, what they would do is they would rub some salt into it, and that would preserve uh, a lot of meats and a lot of different things, and, and it would keep it from going bad, from spoiling. The salt in Jesus' day had a preserving effect. It was used to help slow down decay. And as believers, you and I were to have the same type of influence in this world that we live in. John Stott puts it well when he writes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, God has himself established certain institutions in his common grace which curb man's selfish tendencies and prevent society from slipping into anarchy. Chief among these are the state with its authority to frame and enforce laws and the home, including marriage and family life. These exert a wholesome influence in the community. Nevertheless, God intends the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. You, you, believer, are the salt of the earth. You are the one who is to be characterized by being poor in spirit, by being mournful, gentle, hungry, and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, and a peacemaker. You, emphatically you, are the salt of the earth. Take that in. Think about that. Contemplate the weightiness of that. Jesus is speaking to you here, and he's speaking to me. And he's calling us by this power which mightily works within us to influence this broken world in a way that will keep it from rotting. And make no no mistake about it, this world is, it's rotting, it's broken. When sin entered the world back in Genesis 3, all of creation was impacted in a negative way. What God had once called very good, well now it groans. And it suffers because of the fall, according to Romans 8.22. The humanity that once was created in the image of God, that was made in the image of God, has become infected. It has become corrupted. And now it is barely recognizable to have anything to do with God. I mean, just just listen to how we're described in our fallen state by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.10-18. This is what he says. He says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the world that we live in is a wicked place. 
Everywhere you look, sin is abounding. And yet, I can't help but think, how much worse would this world be were it not for the influence of true, genuine believers? How much more ugly, how much more wicked would this world be if true, genuine believers were not influencing and impacting this world? You see, these believers, they act like salt. And they act like salt in the sense that their very presence keeps behavior from deteriorating to the most base of levels. Their presence makes an impact. Before I actually became a Christian, I had a, I had a certain group of friends that, that were Christians. God had seen fit to bring them into my life, even though I wasn't seeking to live for God. I, I had people that were, and I, I knew them. And these friends had a positive influence on me. My behavior when I was around them was, was far better than it was when I was not with them. And you know, while I didn't know what it was about them back then, I certainly know what it is now. You see, they were functioning like they were supposed to be. They were functioning as salt in a world that's lost. Their influence, though, never came across as them thinking themselves as being superior or self-righteous. It was a genuine, a genuine influence that made ungodly behavior or speech just seem inappropriate or unnecessary. Oftentimes, without even saying a word, they kept things from, from going south, from going bad, from decaying. As Christians, our, our presence should make a difference. Whether we find ourselves in the workplace or on the sporting field or even within the confines of our own homes, our very presence should be raising the bar in some sense. Remember, you are the salt of the world. So let me ask you, how are you doing, believer? Are you influencing those around you for good? When you're at work, do your coworkers feel comfortable telling you that, that dirty joke or spreading the latest office gossip? Does your life and character call people to a more God-honoring standard of living or does it permit them to wallow in the muck and the mire of the culture? How are you seen at work? Is there something different about you? Do you have a preserving effect there? See, you... You, believer, are the salt of the world. But you will never have any influence if you don't get out of the salt shaker. And here's what we want to drive home here. If you never make it a point to engage with non-Christians, you will never fulfill your purpose. If you do nothing but hang out in the salt shaker with a bunch of other salt, how are you going to influence this world that God has put you in? How are you going to have a positive impact on this world that is decaying and rotting? How are you to preserve it? Now, please don't miss my point here. I'm not saying that it's wrong to spend time with other believers. In fact, the Bible affirms that we are to consider how to encourage one another on to love and good deeds and that we are not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. In a very real sense, we need each other. We need this time together. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to be building up one another and encouraging one another. But 
We also have a world to influence with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must not, we cannot remain in the confines of our cozy little salt shaker. Through authentic Christian living, we must make our presence felt within our homes, our workplaces, our local neighborhoods, our schools, our communities. Wherever there are lost and hurting people, we Christians need to be there influencing that area for good and for the glory of God. But influencing this culture is not without its dangers. Jesus warns us of the potential issue that we must be on guard. We need to be on guard. And he says this. He says, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt, also known as sodium chloride, is a very stable compound, I'm told. And therefore, it doesn't lose its taste. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? What does he mean when he talks about salt becoming tasteless? What's he trying to drive home? Well, in all likelihood, Jesus is speaking in regards to salt's ability to be contaminated or to become diluted. Thus, it renders the salt useless in its ability to act as a a preserving agent to prevent decay or rot. This is a reality and, and something that we need to consider as Christians. I mean, if we're not careful, it is possible... It is possible, brothers and sisters, to lose our influence in this world. As one commentator puts it, he says, For effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness as salt must retain its saltness. If Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical, If we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt, thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. See, our influence over a wicked and perverse world is inextricably tied to our being different from it. And this, brothers and sisters, is where many are floundering. See, the world... And all that it's about has crept in. It's crept into the church. And instead of of us having an influence upon the world, the world is having a contaminating effect upon, upon the church and upon us. It's calling out our name. And far too many of you are answering its call. Author and speaker C.J. Mahaney warns us with these words. He says, while remaining in the world, we're not to become like the world. But this sinful fallen world is right in our face. Our affluent and technologically advanced society brings the world to our doorstep, into our homes, into our very presence. It baits our eyes and tickles our ears. We're saturated with media, bombarded by images on television and movie screens and by music on our iPods. We have unlimited access, text messages on our cell phones and internet access on our laptops and handheld devices. We enjoy countless options and clothes to wear, cars to buy and vacations to take. Entertainment to view, music to listen to. Does that explain what you're facing, what you're up against? Now, let me make it very clear. These things that C.J. Mahaney references, in and of themselves, they, they are not inherently evil. But we need to be eyes wide open here. We need to understand that these devices, these things, uh, all of the stuff 
It opens to us a porthole into a fallen world. So let me challenge you to wake up. To wake up out of your your stupor, Christian. And remember that you are the salt of the earth. You are to have a preserving effect. Your presence is to be felt. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, this world does not need more people that look and act just like they do. This world needs salt. It needs Christians that are not ashamed to follow Jesus Christ. It needs men and women that are willing to die to themselves so that Christ might live in in and through them, that He might reign in their hearts and influence this dying, rotting world. Brothers and sisters, can I have a little more salt, please? Can a few more of us step up and start living this life that God has called us to? If we're professing Christ as our Lord and Savior, let us have an impact. Let us live in a way that is different. Let's stop living like the rest of the world is living. This world is dying. This world is rotting. It's decaying right before our very eyes. Let us not lose the one thing that we have to offer it. The only thing that can give them hope. The only thing that can pull them out from the muck and the mire. Let us not lose it in our pursuit of things. You see, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He lived a perfect life. And he offered that perfect life up as a substitute, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He died in our place and he took upon himself the punishment for our sins. And then we're told that he was buried, but after three days, praise God, he was raised, conquering death once and for all. And after that, we're told he ascended into heaven to where right now, right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, just waiting, waiting to return, waiting for the appointed time. How will he find you? How will he find you when he returns? If you're to return today, will he find you fulfilling your role as the salt of the earth? Will he find you influencing the world, preserving it with your presence? Or will he find you thrown out and trampled under foot of men? Let us look to influence those around us with this life-altering message of hope that is found only in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. Now, having looked at Jesus' first metaphor of salt, we're now ready to look more closely at a second metaphor of light. Picking things up in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, this is what it says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus starts off this section with another emphatic statement. He says this. He says, you, you, believer, you are the light of the world. You get that? Not only are you salt, you're also light. And again, I think we need to come back and take a look at what light does. 
We need to understand the correlation uh, that exists between our ability to be light and who Jesus really was. And Jesus makes this clear. He helps us to understand that there's a relationship that because we are in him, we can now be lights ourselves. In John eight twelve, Jesus spoke these words. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. See, Jesus is the light of the world, and it's through our union with him, through faith in him, that we too can become the light of the world, that we can shine in such a way that people will see what we're doing and be drawn to our heavenly father. But we have to be in union with Christ. He is the ultimate light. And we are simply the ones who reflect and and take in that light and then put it out. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it brilliantly when he wrote this. He says, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun that is here in the day and gone at night. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon, the church, shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. When Jesus was in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. But as he contemplated leaving this world, he said, you are the light of the world. At times, the church has been at full moon, dazzling the world with an almost daytime light. These have been times of great enlightenment, times such as those of Paul and Luther and Wesley. And at other times, the church had been only a thumbnail moon with very little light shining upon the earth. Whether the church is a full moon or a new thumbnail moon, waxing or waning, it reflects the light of the sun. The key point that we must take away from this illustration is the fact that we are not the originators of this light. This light does not find its beginning in us, but rather it is the light that is bestowed upon us by our being found in Christ, who according to John 1, 9, is the, who alone is the only true light. Our union with Christ makes us the light of the world. You, believer, are the light of the world. This is not something that you you are becoming. This is what you are now. This is who you are now. Sure, there was a time when this was not a, when this was not the case, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But according to Colossians 1, 13 through 14, He rescued us. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, God in his infinite kindness has rescued you. He's rescued you out of the domain of darkness. By his grace, you have been redeemed. By his grace, you have been transferred into his kingdom of light. In love, he has poured out upon you every spiritual blessing so that you are lacking in nothing, according to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. He has placed his very spirit to dwell inside of you, according to 1 Corinthians three sixteen, And he has made you a new creature, according to 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Brothers and sisters, if this is indeed true, 
and I trust that it is true of you, then is this something that can be hidden? Is this something that you will be able to keep under wraps so that nobody will know? And even if it were, why, why in the world would you want to hide it? You, you, believer, are the light of the world. And the one thing that is true about light is that it can be seen. It must be seen. I mean, if you and I have truly placed our faith in Christ, it will be evident. It will be clear. There'll be no question about it. If you and I have truly trusted in what Christ has done, if we've truly turned from our sin and trusted in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, it will be clearly seen. Jesus goes on to tell us that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. As such, we must allow the light of Christ to shine forth from us for all all the world to see. We are not called to be some lifeless little town that gets kind of buried down in some valley and, and gets nestled away in there so that nobody can see it. No, we are called to be a city on a hill. Now, you and I live in a day and age where we... Well, it's hard for us to kind of maybe grasp what this really looks like. I mean, we have electricity that can pretty much take the glow of light to just about anywhere. Now, it may be difficult, again, to get this, but hopefully we can, we can grasp what he's after here. I mean, if you've ever been anywhere where maybe light and electricity haven't uh, kind of taken over, if you've ever been anywhere where it's really dark, I mean, really dark, I mean, so dark you can barely see your hand in front of your face dark, then you can get this image because when it's really dark, any amount of light will easily stand out. And I just recently finished reading J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. And there was a scene in the book, again, the, the book here, not the movie, so don't be you know, saying I'm making things up because it's in the book, all right? So there's a scene in the book whereby the group ventures off course they were given a path to travel and they kind of get off of that path even though they were warned not to do so by their previous host bjorn and what was it that drew them off of this path well they saw some light and they heard some people having a great feast and they were desperate and hungry and they did something that they shouldn't have done they followed the glow from the light where the feast was being held but this feast wasn't being held by just anybody. It was being held by the wood elves. And wood elves apparently are able to shut things down in the blink of an eye. For as soon as the hobbit and his companions arrive and they make themselves seen, the fire and some torches go out and everybody from the feast disappears, leaving the hobbit and his companions in utter darkness. And we're talking Pitch black darkness. They are stumbling around. They can't see anything. They can't find anything. They are, they are lost in the darkness. And this continues to happen to them. A series of events continues to happen to where in a distance they'll see the light come up. And then they'll work their way over to it only to have the same thing happen to where they are in the darkness. And it keeps repeating up until some scary big arachnids come onto the scene. But that's a whole different whole different thing. Now, the point I want to make here is just like the wood elf's fire pierced through that type of utter darkness of the woods, drawing Bilbo and his friends to it every time, our light is to pierce through the utter darkness of the world. It is to stand like a city on a hill. It is to be so evident that you can't help but see it. 
The very purpose of our, of our being followers of Jesus Christ is that we are light bearers. This is not something that is open for discussion. We can't talk about whether we want to or not. This is who we are. This is, this is something that we do. As those that have been graciously drawn into the kingdom of light, we have to shine. We must shine. Which is why Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 15, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. How silly. How silly it would be to light a lamp and then cover it up. I mean, that would be like you and I going to our house and and flicking on all the light switches when it's really dark out at night, and then going and covering the light bulb so that we can't see a thing. Why would you do that? The light's there to give you light so you can see what's going on, so you can make, make heads and tails out of what's going on. Why would you cover it up? It makes absolutely no sense to do this. By doing that, you're keeping the light from doing what it was meant to do. Bring light into darkness. You see, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones offers some fair advice when he writes this. If we find in ourselves a tendency to put the light under a bushel, we must begin to examine ourselves and make sure that it really is light. See, if we consistently find ourselves being or wanting to cover or conceal the light of the gospel, then we need to consider the words that Jesus spoke in in Mark 8.38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me speak to the professing Christian right now. For those of you that are in the workplace and you're surrounded by unbelievers who who are not seeking God or that may even be somewhat hostile to the things of God, is your lamp on the lampstand or are you putting it under a basket? Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian or do you simply consider that that's none of their business? This is the workplace after all and those matters shouldn't be discussed here. Let me remind you, 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 believer, are the light of the world. For those of you that are currently in school, whether that be grade school, middle school, high school, college, vocational school, whatever, is your lamp on the lampstand or are you putting it under a basket? Do your fellow students know that you're a Christian or are you too afraid of what that might do to your reputation, what they might think about you? if they were to know. Can I remind you of something? You, you are the light of the world. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, is your lamp on the lampstand or are you putting it under a basket? Let me remind you that you are the light of the world. If you belong to Christ, you are to unashamedly bring light to a world that is lost a world that is lost in darkness. But don't expect the world to praise you for it. Instead, expect to be mocked. Expect to be ridiculed. Expect to be written off as being narrow-minded or some kind of simpleton. We you see, brothers and sisters, the world is in darkness and it loves the darkness. 
John 3, 19 through 21 clearly states that. It says, The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus exposed the deeds of the world when he was here. And now he's calling you as a believer to do the very same thing. Like a light on a lampstand, we're to bring light to every nook and to every cranny that we find ourselves coming in contact with. Our presence is to pierce the darkness so that people might clearly see the truth of the gospel. Not in some self-righteous, I'm better than you type of a manner. We should never look at something and be so shocked like, and think, well, I would never do something like that. Yes, you would. If you were still in the darkness. See, because you're in the light, it's different. And you need to bring light into those situations. Again, not as some self-righteous, arrogant person that stands over judgment over everybody, but as somebody who has the only means by which a life can be changed and transferred from that darkness into light. You have the only hope for this dying and decaying world. As light bearers, you and I have a very high calling for our lives, a calling that is clearly stated in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, this isn't just some kind of nice, good advice that Jesus is giving us here. This is a command. It's in the imperative. He gives us a command here. We are to let our light shine before men. This is what we are here to do. Now, some of you might be wondering how a passage like this lines up with the command that Jesus gives a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, whereby he tells us to beware of practicing our righteousness before men. It's found in Matthew 6.1. And really, the answer to this apparent problem lies in where are we attempting to point people? In the passage we're looking at this morning, we do what we do so that people might praise the Father. We live our lives in such a way, we conduct ourselves in such a way that people would see those good works and they would be drawn to the Father. In that other case, in Matthew 6, 1, what's going on there? That person does what he does so that people might praise him. And this is where the difference lies. See, if we're true believers, we've truly been saved. We've been brought out of the darkness into the light. The things that we do, the good works that we do, We do for God's glory, not so that people will come and tell us how good we are. Brothers and sisters, if you're a man pleaser, if you care more about what man thinks about you than what God thinks about you, be on guard. Be on guard. God hasn't called you out so that you can get praise. God has called you out so that he might get praise through you. You are the means to reach this lost and dying world. You are the light of the world. You are to bring that light into this world and to influence it and to impact it. As Christians, the motivation behind the good works that we do must always be to bring glory to God. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we, 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As those that have been drawn out of darkness and brought into light, we're to perform these types of works that spring forth from the soil of gratitude. And they are to be beautiful works. Beautiful works. Works that point others back to God. John Stott offers some clarity when he writes concerning good works. He says this, Good works are works of love as well as faith. They express not only our loyalty to God, but our care for our fellows as well. Indeed, the primary meaning of works must be practical, visible deeds of compassion. It is when people see these, Jesus said, that they will glorify God. For they embody the good news of his love, which we proclaim. Without them, our gospel loses its credibility and our God, his honor. You and I have been called to do good works. We're to show compassion, mercy to a lost and dying world. We are to do things that will point them to our Heavenly Father. We are to do things that show them we are different. We are not like the rest of the world. And God will use that to draw people into this kingdom, to draw them out of the darkness and into the light. See, if you and I are, tr- are to truly be Christians then let us make sure that we truly grasp this great position of responsibility that we have. See, the things that we talked about this morning, they're not for some super elite group of believer. This is for for all of us. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be in Christ. They are for every believer, past, present, future. This is what a believer does. This is who they are. They are salt and they are light. In closing, I wanted to leave you with some thoughts from J.C. Ryle regarding our passage. He writes this, and he he put it so well, I, I didn't even want to mess it up by changing it in any way. He says this, he says, surely if words mean anything, We are meant to learn from these two figures that there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character. If we are true Christians, it will never do to idle through life thinking and living like others if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? then there must be a difference of habits, tastes, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. And as we close here, let me just challenge you to think about where you're at. You're here at Calvary Bible Church. Some of you have been coming months, years, decades. Think about your life. Think about the impact that you're having in this, in this world. Are you functioning as a Christian supposed to function? Are you truly salt and light? Is there a difference in you, in the things that you pursue, 
in the things that you go after? Or are you just like the rest of the world, except, you know what, you come to church and you clean up a little, a little bit better on, Sunday, on Sundays? Brothers and sisters, this isn't, this isn't something where I'm trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm trying to get you to, to, to realize this is what Christianity looks like. And if your life doesn't look like this, if this isn't describing you, then you need to seriously consider whether or not you're, you're a believer, whether or not you're truly in Christ. Because if you are in Christ, if you truly have turned from your sin and you've trusted in His perfect work and His Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you and you are a new creature, a new creation, you're going to look different. You're going to stand out. And it's going to be evident. You're going to be salt. And you're going to be light. So look at your life. Look at the impact that you're having. Are you salt and light? That's something that only you can answer. But hopefully, this morning, we can get challenged to take a look of of what it means to truly be a Christian. Surely, Surely it's more than getting baptized and coming to church on Sunday. You and I are to have an impact in this world that we live in. God is calling us to reach this lost and dying world with the good news of Jesus Christ. He has graciously drawn us out from it and now we are to take that gracious good news and bring it to a lost and dying world. Are you doing that? Are you preserving the world as your influence felt? Are you shining light wherever you go, not in some self-righteous, I'm better than you manner, but in a way that realizes, hey, I was there too. And by God's grace, I'm not there anymore. Think about that, brothers and sisters. You, you are the salt of the earth. You, you are the light of the world. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. And we thank you that you have been so kind and gracious to us. That you have opened up our eyes, Lord. That you have allowed us to see our true condition apart from Christ. And Father, I pray that you will help us to be a people that truly are set apart for you. Not in our gathering together and hanging out together, but Lord, in our behavior, in our conduct, in the things that we pursue, in the things that we fill our minds with. Lord, help us to be distinct and different from this world. Help us to be salt and light to a world that so desperately needs both of those things. We thank you and we praise you and we hold all of these things up to you, Lord, and pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.